This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Saturday, October 9th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. Abu Zubaydah has been held incommunicado for well over a decade in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. His case has now gone before the U.S. Supreme Court. Cato's Julian Sanchez describes how broad and often bureaucratically self-interested assertions of state secrets privilege, which of course exists nowhere in the Constitution, means for the ability of our courts to do their best to deliver justice. This case has been going on for a very long time. Um, start with this. Who is Abu Zubaydah? So Abu Zubaydah is a uh, Guantanamo Bay uh, detainee who has been, at this point, held by the U.S. for uh, about 20 years. Um, he was captured some 20 years ago, and at the time, uh, the intelligence community believed that he was the essentially the number three guy in al-Qaeda, a top Osama bin Laden lieutenant. Uh, it has uh, become increasingly clear that that is uh, probably not true, that he was um, not necessarily a, a, a babe in the woods, but a, um, a fixer for various um, radical uh, Islamists in, uh, operating out of Pakistan, um, but not even necessarily a, a member of al-Qaeda, uh, but believing, as it appears falsely, that he was a very high-ranking uh, uh, al-Qaeda lieutenant. He was captured uh, by uh, the United States and then uh, subject to what was euphemistically termed enhanced interrogation, uh, what um, most people would call torture, um, at a series of black sites in Thailand and then uh, Poland. Uh, this included uh, being waterboarded at least 83 times, uh, tapes that were so uh, disturbing, apparently, even to the uh, CIA uh, personnel running the torture program that they were destroyed in 2005. Uh, it was also subject to a number of other uh, enhanced interrogation techniques, stress positions, uh, sleep deprivation, physical assault. Um, and he's had a habeas petition uh, pending now for some uh, I think more than a dozen years has not been, of course, tried, um, and has already, I believe, been awarded a, a, a finding from the European Court of Human Rights some years ago um, that awarded him $100,000 in damage for the, um, the conduct he was subjected to. And the case before the Supreme Court now involves uh, a, a prosecution in Poland itself. There's an, a, a prosecutor in Poland who is investigating um, the conduct that Polish officials um, were complicit in, and in, of course, uh, potential violation, a very likely violation, of European human rights law. And so Zubaida's lawyers want to be able to depose a couple of CIA uh, contractors who were involved in that interrogation and that torture. And uh, so that, that testimony can be provided to the Polish legal system for their own investigation. And the United States government, uh, despite the fact that essentially all of this is now on the public record and has been for many years, um, is not any serious question of whether it's the case um, that he was held in these places and, uh, and, and subject to torture. Um, but still, you know, the government would like the testimony of people who were eyewitnesses to describe the nature of the treatment that he endured there. But the government is claiming that this is covered by the state secrets privilege. Um, this is a, a, 
a privilege that is you know, effectively a creation of the courts it has no explicit constitutional textual basis, but um, effectively permits um, the government to force, often in some cases, to um, entirely avoid litigation, even over constitutional questions, uh, by claiming that uh, uh, information that is uh, vital to national security or that would injure national security if disclosed um, would be implicated. Uh, and so the question now before the court, after the, the Ninth Circuit essentially um, refused to accept that, um, that argument in this case, um, said, look, you know, you are stretching, you have to be stretching the the notion of deference to executive determinations here too far if you're claiming that something that's widely known, you know, uh, can't be disclosed to the point where it, it uh, trumps the other equities involved. Um, so the question before the court now is uh, is uh, whether, um, whether he can depose these contractors. And uh, the fact that the Ninth Circuit uh, said what it said would sort of flies in the face of of the general nature of courts to be extremely deferential almost anywhere that national security is uh, asserted, at least credibly asserted. That's right. And, the, you know, the principle here, which on face is not unreasonable, is um, judges have no special competence in evaluating um, what the consequences of uh, particular disclosures would be. So what would be the effect um, on national security of some particular piece of information becoming public? Um, well, you know, the courts are not trained in making that kind of assessment uh, in, in uh, it was effectively a kind of counterintelligence assessment. Um, and so they are, you know, to some extent, reasonably deferential to determinations by executive branch officials when they say, our assessment is that this would be harmful to national security. Um, the problem, of course, is that when that principle of deference is in place, it becomes, a, I think, a, a great temptation um, to uh, to see that, well, the court is going to accept whatever our representation is. And so um, as long as we say national security harm, um, we can uh, prevent in this case, not even really a disclosure because the information is public, um, but we can prevent uh, legal processes that we would prefer not occur. In this case, not even legal processes in the U.S., but um, but overseas. It's it's actually interesting to note that the if you listen to the the oral arguments before the court in this case, the heart of the government's argument at this point is not really even that that a harm would come. From the disclosure, because again, um, yes, they would be sort of, I suppose, officially confirming um, something that is formally not confirmed, but it's not a secret. There's not any serious question of whether these things happened. Um, but uh, so their argument is not, well, somehow people learning about this would um, would cause a harm. Rather, the argument is effectively, uh, look, the United States uh, has allies that it shares intelligence with, engages in various intelligence-related covert activities with, uh, and we commit with them to protect um, those activities that we engage in jointly and protect, for example, the intelligence that they share with us. Um, and, and you know, again, here you can, you can make the reasonable argument. Look, um, if the UK is sharing intelligence with us and there is some uh, information that, if disclosed, would not directly harm U.S. 
national security, but would be bad for the UK, um, then it's in our security interest to protect that information uh, because otherwise we compromise the intelligence sharing relationship. So there's a certain logic to that. Um, but in a sense, right, it lacks a limiting principle um, because what they're effectively saying is, uh, yeah, look, anything we sort of secretly engage in with an ally um, now, because we've made a commitment to them, becomes something covered by the state secret privilege, kind of regardless of the impact, the direct impact of the disclosure of that information. So if, you know, the United States and Sri Lanka engage in a joint program to torture puppies for amusement and no national security reason, um, but they've promised each other to keep this secret, then the torture, pup, the, the, the puppy torture program, um, right, under this argument is a vital state secret, um, not because the information itself is critical to national security, but because we've made this sort of diplomatic commitment, um, It's which is, is, of course, a problem, right? It means effectively um, anything uh, can become, uh, can, can fall within the aegis of state secrets protection, um, as long as there's an understanding between two countries. Yeah, the United States could make some pledge to another country. We will keep this information about this thing secret in order to uh, maintain a relationship with you. And then the state secrets privilege could extend to, well, we didn't really want to offend them. Right, exactly. Uh, in, in, in the abstract, the logic of this argument makes the state's secrets privilege a kind of Swiss army knife that's applicable to anything provided there is this kind of international agreement and you can make this claim about the importance of protecting a commitment. Um, and that seems obviously like that uh, a bridge too far, even if there is some sort of force to some versions of this argument. Um, so the, the kind of the pure intelligence sharing version has some, um, some logic to it. Uh, but, uh, you know, Without some limiting principle, um, what you're essentially saying is the government has the ability to make things, state secrets, important to national security, kind of at its discretion, um, even if the underlying information uh, would not be. Um, so in, in a way, and I think one of the, the, the judges during the oral argument made this observation themselves, that at some point, really, you are not, in a sense, talking about a state secret privilege anymore. Um, the argument they're making in some sense is not about secrecy because it's not a secret. Um, it's an argument about protecting our allies from the consequences of cooperating with the United States. Um, but that is not a, a recognized legal privilege. So they have to sort of shoehorn this security interest into the concept of state secrecy, even in the absence of, of actual secrecy. So perhaps this is a, a, a dumb question, and, and for people who are hawks with respect to terrorism, uh, they might think it's stupid. But the question is, why isn't Abu Zubaydah uh, uh, been let go or remanded to some other group's custody? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, uh, one of the, the justices actually was, was somewhat incredulous. They, they um, I think Justice Gorsuch, at least one other, sort of posed the question, look, couldn't we avoid this whole tussle over, over whether CIA contractors can be deposed by just saying, well, Zubaydah himself 
uh, can can testify. It's not a it's not a state secret for him to testify about his own experience. Uh, the government can't claim that. Justice um, Breyer, but Justice Breyer, that's right. Justice Breyer and Justice Gorsuch have raised this question, and uh, you know the answer was, well, look, you know he's being held not in Comunicado, but he's being held in Guantanamo Bay, and and. Um, you know, he's allowed to communicate, but um, subject to review of all his communications for disclosure of potential classified information. So, um, in effect, that's not uh, really an option while he's in government custody. And so they asked, well, you know, why haven't you filed a, a habeas petition um, to see if he can can be released to do this? Uh, and they said, look, we've had a, a habeas petition filed in D.C. for a dozen years with no with no action on it. It seems like contrary to the spirit of, of a habeas petition, if you, it can just sort of stall uh, for a dozen years. Um, yeah, you would think that either. Um, I mean, the problem, of course, is you would think, look, to the extent that this guy is, in fact, guilty of, of uh, something, even if he was not, in fact, uh, a number three Al Qaeda lieutenant, um, he could be tried. But of course, to the extent the inform- you know, any information obtained from him was obtained by torture, um, that would probably not be admissible in U.S. courts. Um, it's, you know, it may not be clear how how satisfactorily they can prove crimes like, you know, under U.S. law that are directly traceable to him. Um, but they still believe that he is dangerous. Uh, they're not necessarily wrong about that. And so, um, you know, someone who cannot uh, at this point acceptably be uh, released, which of course again is you know, the problem is we, we we've now created this you know, fortunately sort of dwindling uh, group of people who uh, cannot be tried, but who the government asserts cannot be released, uh, and essentially are 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 likely to spend uh, you know they've already spent you know frankly half a lifetime uh, in in detention. So is this an opportunity for the Supreme Court to? Uh, put some sort of guardrails on what the state secrets privilege covers and what it doesn't cover because uh, as as you as you maintain you know the government here seems to be arguing that uh, we're not going to we don't want to explore the outer bounds of what state secrets can cover yeah and you you see you think you saw in the the exchange a kind of desire by a lot of the justices uh, not to get involved in the substantive question. I mean, looking for uh, ways around having to make the direct assessment, which I think at at some level is probably uh, not avoidable. I think it makes sense, again, to have a certain level of deference. But I think, you know, unless the state secrets privilege is just going to be a a sort of all-purpose get-out-of-jail-free card, um, to some extent, they need to start um, defining, uh, in broad terms, you know what what kinds of claims um, are 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 not going to work, or at least are going to be subject to more scrutiny uh, than than others. And also, you know, to some extent, to weigh uh, to weigh competing equities. Um, you know, where uh, you know what what is the interest on the other side of the secret? You're saying, well, you're claiming. You know, on the one hand, some potential diminution of uh, of trust. Well, um, but what is the interest in, you know, for example, assisting um, another country in enforcing their own human rights laws? I think that's an additional equity. And, and, um, you know, again, to some extent, 
it is the court's role to um, to at least in some cases and with some level of deference uh, to to make that kind of determination. You know, we now know that the original uh, case that sort of launched the state secrets privilege is one where you know, at least according to a lot of people who look back after the fact, it's a case involving um, the crash of a, um, a, a military plane um, that, that killed some of the people uh, on board. Uh, and when the widow of one of the people killed attempted to sue, um, that suit was blocked uh, under a claim of state secrecy. And when ultimately those papers were declassified many decades later, a lot of the people at least who looked at those documents said, it really does not seem like there was anything uh, particularly vital here. I mean, there may have been you know, something you could claim was of some value to not, to not make public that would give some very marginal advantage to, um, to someone to have some kind of detail, even about maybe what wasn't on the plane. But, uh, but there, you know, there wasn't much there. There was nothing obviously of great weight um, to the point where you would you would block an otherwise legitimate lawsuit. Um, so the kind of the the origin story of the state secrets privilege is, uh, I think, quite plausibly a case where, in fact, there was a very minimal security interest and a desire to avoid publicity and embarrassment for a, a classified program. Um, and I think, you know, the court should bear that in mind uh, when assessing these because, uh, you know, Yes, information can threaten security if it's improperly disclosed, um, but letting governments keep information secret to protect themselves from embarrassment by uttering the magic word security, that's a security threat too. Julian Sanchez is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast pretty much anywhere and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.